Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you're good. Um, We just ask that as we want to know you more, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Holy Spirit, we know that you're the only one that opens eyes. You're the only one that uh, changes hearts. And God, our purpose for coming isn't to get another checklist of things that we need to do differently or better, but we want to know you and see you, and we believe that as we see you more and more, and as that impacts our heart, Lord, we will be made more into your image. And so we're thankful that you're the only one that can do that. And so we lift this time up in Jesus' name. Amen. Getting kind of some weird echo. Okay. You want to just maybe turn me down a little bit? Um, okay. So last week, we just kind of an overview. We, we talked about how God called Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And I'm not going to go over all of it, but one of the things I do want to leave us with is this idea of, and the thing that had a huge impact on me, and I don't know if you thought throughout the week, but the idea of the I am, that God chose to identify himself as, like that was his name, like I am. And this idea of not just I am your provider and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm everything that you need, but the idea of his presence, that God chooses to, to operate and function in, like right now, the I am, not I will, he's there too. Not the I was, he's there too. But he wants us to be in the moment with him. And we kind of talked about how that's the hardest place a lot of times, at least for me to function and for a lot of people I talk to to function is very often I am very much consumed with what's coming up or I'm relevant, like just enjoying what was. Um, sometimes I live in the past. And, but for me to be in the moment right now with the presence of the Father, it's sometimes the hardest space to be. And, um, and I think that as humans, I think that even plays a part in how we understand the gospel. And I talked about how often when we approach God or when I approach God, I am coming in the basis of what maybe I have done or not done. Um, or I'm looking at this idea that that doesn't really matter as much as I get to go to heaven one day. Right? But this, the gospel is, is for us now. The good news of what God has done wasn't just to take care of our sin in the past, which it did, and it doesn't just secure our, our destination when we die, but it, that give us abundant life now. And that because of who Jesus is and what he's done, I am fully loved and fully accepted by the Father right now. And so that can change. I can function out of a place of fullness rather than out of a space of deficit. So I can give because I'm full, because my identity is given to me, because I'm loved. I can therefore love. And so, as God does this work, Moses, he calls them out of this space. They cross to the Red Sea. They're in the desert. And so this is where our story picks up. They're in the wilderness. They're starting off. Now, God chose to how he's going to lead the people was, yes, he was going to use Moses, but he was going to use a really big cloud, okay? And I love this, right? So in the daytime, there'd be a cloud that they would follow, but practically, that's so beautiful. It'd protect them from the sun. They're in the desert in the Middle East, not the coolest place to live, right? Just imagine like July, St. George, and there's cloud everywhere you go kind of covering you and shading you, which is nice. But at night, if they were traveling at night, there would be a huge pillar of fire, which would provide light, but also heat, right? So even because deserts get really cold, we know about that a little bit right now, right? So 
God, in this very practical way, very obvious way, is leading the nation of Israel by this either pillar of, of this cloud or pillar of fire. And when that got up and moved, they moved. And so, so you just, I, like, I just try to put myself, when I'm reading these stories, I try to put myself in there, okay? So here you have this people. They just observed the most gnarly of plagues, right? I mean, frogs coming out of everywhere and the Nile turning into blood and like flies and gnats and like hail and, and gnar- like gnarly stuff, right? The Passover happens and, and a bunch of people die and then they go and there's this sea and then it opens up and then they walk through it, right? And then there's this cloud like protecting them and this pillar of fire protecting them, right? And they're in this space and they go for three days and they run out of water and they start losing their mind. They start complaining against Moses. Three days. Like, as the cloud is moving and above them, they're complaining. Like, that blows my mind, right? I think, if I was there, I wouldn't be doing that, right? But who knows, right? But, like, there's, they just witnessed, like, the most miraculous things, okay? And three days in, they start complaining. And this is in Exodus 15, if you want to read it later. This idea that they come to this space and the waters, they have water, but it's bitter. And God tells Moses to throw the stick in it and it makes it sweet and so they can drink. So you think, okay, cool. Maybe they see a pattern that God is going to provide. 45 days in, they run out of food. 45 days. Guess what they do? They're like, Lord, you're so amazing. You're going to provide for us? No, they complain again, right? Like, they start complaining. I, I, this one I want to read because it's um, Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. It says, And they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, so 45 days after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds awesome. And we ate bread to the full, and you have brought us out into the wilderness to to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Forty-five days in, they start grumbling. You brought us here to die. We had these meat pots in Egypt, and we had bread to the fill. Like, they were slaves. Like, their children, their boys had to be killed. Right? Like, Pharaoh had made a decree that their boys had to be left and exposed to the sun because they didn't want them to get strong. Like, their workload was so brutal, and the thing that they're zeroing in on is the food that they had because they're hungry. Like, I think it's so fascinating to me that, that so often it's easy to glorify like dark times, like these aspects of the dark times, we forget the misery and the heartache that came with it, right? But one thing, I love God's response. He goes, so the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm going to rain bread down from heaven, and you all the people will go out and gather it every day. And then I'm gonna, he goes down a little bit farther down, and he goes, I'm going to provide meat too. I'm going to send quail, and they're going to eat, and everybody's going to have a great time. Like, God's like, okay, I'm going to provide food for them. Like, that's why, hopefully, as we get through more even, even today, as we go through, this is God's story, right? Like, 
the human aspect of this story is so often so messed up. Like, it's just we're not bringing a lot. One of the quotes from a pastor in Texas says, like, often the only thing we bring to the table when we're talking about in regards to God is the sin that, like, that was made Christ's sacrifice necessary. Right? And I'm not trying to say that we're all bad because God has redeemed us and we've given us his identity and he's given us, like, we're fully loved and fully accepted by the Father and God loves us and he takes joy in us, right? Like, he dances over us. Like, that's God's heart for us. But apart from him and apart from the work that he's done, like, we're complaining about the meat pot. Like, that's like it. That's all we got, right? And so he provides this bread that comes down from heaven. And this bread will sustain the nation of Israel for their entire time in the wilderness. It provided every bit of nutrition they needed. It was available every single day except for on on the Sabbath. And then they'd have to uh, grab twice as much. They don't know, the word manna comes from the word like, what is it? Because they're like, what is it? We don't know. To this day, we still don't know what it was. But it provided all of their food, this bread really from heaven. And so they ate, and they're feeling better now. They got quail, they're feeling better now. And um, despite their grumblings, God just provided. So somewhere between this moment and 90 days from them being in the desert, there's another incident. They ran out of water again. So what do you think they do? So, so far, they've watched God provide a ton of quail. They've watched God have literally rain bread down from heaven. There's still the pillar of cloud. There's still the fire, right? They just had water wrecks provided for them before. They still remember that all the miracles, because that was only like two months ago, right? They run out of water, and so what do they do? Exodus chapter 17, they complain yet again. And all the congregation, um, they moved on from the wilderness to sin and according to the commandments of the Lord, and they camped. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us out to Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take your hand, the staff in which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you. And there on the rock of Horeb you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord. Is the Lord not among us? And so, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. God tells him to take the staff, and he goes, and he strikes this rock, and water comes out, even despite the people quarreling. And I love that, like, this is so beautiful. Like, they're getting, they're like throwing these, they're, obviously they're thirsty, they're hungry. Makes sense. But God's response is so gracious with them the entire time. And, of course, there's times later where he gets a little frustrated and he tells Moses he's going to wipe them out. That's coming. But up until right now, he's being extremely gracious. And so, they come to Mount Sinai. This is three months in, 90 days. Now, this is a similar location to where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And so they come to this space, and God calls Moses, and he says to him to come up to the mountain. Now, 
1 through 9. And on the third new moon after the people of Israel came out of Egypt, 19, chapter of Exodus, they set out from um, Rephidim. And they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness, and Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called them out of the mountain, and he said, Thus say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people. So God brings them out. And and we have this moment where he's entering into a covenant with his people. It's almost, picture-wise, it's almost as though like he's bringing them to the wedding, right? Like he's entering into this covenant with his people. And he brings them to this mountain. This mountain is definitely significant. This is where he interacted with Moses. This is the space where he's going to make himself known. And he tells them a few things. He says to them, look what I've done for you. Look what I've done against the people against you. Look what I've done for you. Remember what I've done for you. And then he says, but listen, if you obey me, if you enter into this covenant with me, you're going to be my special treasure. Like, that's such a beautiful picture of how he's describing this relationship. And he goes, I want to make you a nation of priests, right? This idea of people that that are intermediates between humans and God and uh, a nation of kings, a holy nation, priests and a holy nation. And so he goes, tells Moses to go tell these people this stuff. Now, one of the things we've got to keep in mind is that we always have to remember that God's original promise to Abraham was that I'm going to make your descendants a blessing to the whole world, Right? Right? So he is continuing this. And this is his, his encouragement to this nation of Israel. He said, listen, you, I'm going to make you a blessing to the rest of the nations. You're my special treasure. I'm going to make you this kingdom of priests, this, this group, this nation that is going to go to people and, and be this conduit between God and humanity. Like where this idea of image is starting to come back into picture. That God is saying, again, I'm calling a people to myself to image me to the rest of the world. We're talking about these themes because they are interwoven between everything that we see from Genesis to the end. And so he's calling them to image him again, to this idea of ultimately pointing the rest of the nations around them back to God. So Moses tells the people in verse 8, the people say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's like, perfect, right? Like, yeah, everything God's telling you to do, we're totally going to do it. Three months in, they barely could handle it, and they've already like, yeah, we're going to nail this, right? So God lays out the terms of their covenant of what they're going to do, and it takes quite a few chapters. But the question, as we see, and this is one of the things I think is beautiful about as we see this as a larger story, is that what God does right after this is he starts giving the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the law, how the tabernacle is going to be designed, And I think that if we take just that, the law, apart from the larger story, it gets really weird, right? There's animal sacrifices, and then there's like a tent, and there's all this stuff starting playing a part. But but taken from it out of the context of the larger story, it doesn't, I think for the average person, man, we have to do all this stuff, like, like the dietary laws and the ceremonial cleanliness and all this stuff. 
But when we look at it in the larger story, we see that God goes, hey, I want you to image me. I want you to communicate something about me to the rest of the world. I want you to be a nation of priests. I want you to to be this, this special treasured people that blesses the whole world. It would lead the, them to listen and go, well, what are, how, what, how are we going to do that? What does that look like? And God would be like, let me give you this law so that you can image me. This is what it looks like. So the law, as he gives it, is a way for the people to go, okay, this is what it looks like to communicate something about God in our culture. And then we also see part of the law in regards to the tabernacle and everything is God restoring again this opportunity for human beings to have a relationship with God in a physical way on the earth. And so that's what he does. And so as they're imaging him through the law and relationship starts being um, restored, in the law he also tells them, like, this is what relationships with human beings look like. He lays out all the different relationships. This is what health looks like. This is what it looks like to be a healthy human on the earth. And he spells it out in this very specific way. In a lot of ways, God, again, as we looked at the very first week, is defining good and evil. We see God's standard of good and evil come back on the scene. And Adam and Eve are given the opportunity, or not Adam and Eve, but this people, their descendants, are given the opportunity again to trust God's definition of good and evil and obey. And that's really what we see laying out here. And so he gives them this law And he also gives them very specific instructions how to build this tent called the tabernacle. And what's beautiful about this idea is that the tabernacle from the outside was very plain. It had like animal skin on the outside, but inside we see two aspects of it that are kind of cool. One, there's gold everywhere, so it almost is pointing to the idea of heaven. But also it's a lot of like trees and vegetation, it's almost bringing us back to the garden, right? So we have this space where God's presence for the first time ever is saying, I'm going to dwell on earth again. There is going to be one spot in the, in the entire world where God's presence will choose. He chooses to place himself in this space so human beings can interact. The last time we saw that was the garden entered in to the tabernacle, there would be pomegranate trees and all these different little wolvings all around, right? So you have this idea of, of the garden and heaven meeting and human beings being able to connect with God again. And it's, we're going to see, if we had time to go through all of the law, that it was one specific family was allowed to do this, the Levites, and they were to govern all of this stuff the right way, but the whole purpose was that humans again can interact with God. He'd be behind a veil. There would still be a lot of requirements before they do it. They just can't walk in willy-nilly. Like, there was a lot of stuff, but there was still an opportunity for humans to have interaction. As this space, the tabernacle, if you went out of that space, you'd see a large basin in this area that God was choosing to dwell. And this basin really would be, represent ceremonially being clean. They'd wash themselves. Take a little bit of dirt off, but the idea was that they'd be clean. They'd be pure ceremonially, before they entered into that tabernacle. And then before that space, there would be an altar. And on this altar, they would sacrifice animals. And so you'd have come to this altar, sacrifice animal, ceremonial clean, 
enter into this space. And so God introduces animal sacrifice into their culture. And I think that for us that have followed Jesus for any significant amount of time, that's like not a big deal. But that for anybody on the outside, that's kind of, in this time, it was very common. But I think for us today, that's weird, right? Like you're killing an animal for somebody else. That doesn't, like anytime we hear of somebody sacrificing an animal right now, we usually were like, well, that's a cult or like what's going on there, right? Like it's not a normal thing to talk about right? Like you're killing an animal and you're draining its blood out and you're sprinkling it all over things. Like I think it's fair for us to acknowledge that because sometimes when we, we just talk about sacrifice and blood, like people listening going like, what are you talking, like what's wrong with you, right? Like so the beautiful thing about sacrifice is we see that as God introduces sacrifice to this culture, he's communicating something very, very important that we're going to see throughout the rest of scripture and that is that sin brings death, right? Somebody has to die. Something has to die. And also this idea that God is holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so he determines that this animal will take the penalty of the human sin and so that they could, human beings could have interaction in relationship with God. It was very limited because human beings keep sinning, and it was cumbersome because you got to bring an animal to sacrifice. And it was momentary, right? Because like you're only good for this a little bit amount of time. But through all of these ceremonies, all of these feasts, all this stuff, human beings were called to come to God's presence on a regular basis. And he made a way for them to be in his presence through the shedding of blood of these animals. And here's what's crazy is when, when Israel obeyed the law, God said that as they believed this and they obeyed the law and trusted him and showing their trust through their obedience, God would um, bless them. And when they didn't and when they disobeyed, what that communicated is they weren't trusting God. Um, they, weren't, they were declaring good and evil on their own. Um, God would remove his blessing. And if we're not careful, it's easy for us to say, so God blesses doing good and he punishes doing bad. And I think that's a faulty way to look at it, starting off. Because what I would say is a better description of this is that what God was determining is that all of these things, the sacrifice, everything, will remind the people that they are not well. They've proven it through their complaining, through their rebellion, constant rebellion. That they are guilty and they're deserving of God's punishment because of their sin. And that... Um, God, in their sacrifice, wasn't giving them what they deserved. It was a reminder of that. Like, I deserve that, but I'm not getting that. And so when they would move away from obedience and all this stuff, all that God was doing was allowing them to function in the space that they're already in. Because one of the things we always have to remember is that blessing is not earned. It's a gift. And so as they trusted God, God was giving them things that they don't deserve. He was giving them goodness and grace and himself and all of these things. They don't deserve it, but he's giving it to them. And when they're like, you know what, I don't want that, he's like, then just, you're, you're going to continue in your default pattern, and I'm removing that. So it's the same byproduct, but it's a different perspective, and that is every good and perfect gift is from above. And I think it's good for us to remind that. I think sometimes... Often, I, I, I function that same way where I'm like, I must 
do all this stuff to get good for me. And it's like, no, everything I have is from God anyway. And it's good to be reminded that nothing, I, that really what I deserve is, is the opposite of that. But God is so good. And so, as he's laying out this covenant for them, he's laying out the requirements for them. We're seeing this idea that God's calling him into this relationship with himself and to image himself to the rest of the world. And I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. He's calling the leaders to rule in a way that with generosity, that was going to bring human flourishing, that's going to show the rest of the nations around them, man, that is an amazing nation to be a part of. They must have a God that's different and holy and perfect. The very moment while this is going on, they're literally rebelling against God, making a golden calf, picking a new leader to take them back to Egypt and breaking the covenant instantly. It's like right in the middle of the vows at a wedding, like cheating on the spouse. Like immediately, like, and I promise you this, this, and this. Like, where are you going? Like, that's, the, the, that's what's going on. And so it leads the reader as they're reading this to go, well, how are things made right? Like, how are we going to, like, what are we going to do? And so I'll just close with this. It points us back to Jesus. There needs to be something bigger. There needs to be a Savior. There needs to be something better. Because they can't even make it an hour. They can't even make it a day. Just as we can. And all of these different aspects ultimately point us to Jesus, that Jesus is the better bread that came down from heaven. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, that I'm the bread of heaven. He's the better water out of the rock. Jesus stood up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a feast remembering their journey in the wilderness. The feast where they would take these big water buckets and dump them out, representing the water that came from the rock. Jesus stands up and he says, You know, he who drinks of this water will thirst, but he who drinks of this water will never thirst. He is the water that was, he is the rock that was struck and gives life to all who drink. He's the better and true fulfillment of the law. He's done everything necessary. He's the better tabernacle. He is the the Godhead existing in skin that on the outside looks not significant, but inside is the glory of God. He's the better basin that truly cleans and truly purifies not just our bodies but our souls. He's the better sacrifice. The sacrifice that's not needed day after day, moment after moment. After moment. The sacrifice that not just covers our sin but removes our sin completely. He is the better Moses leading us. And so every one of these things we see pop up throughout these stories is drawing the reader to look to something better because none of these truly satisfy, none of these succeed, none of them do the job necessary. And so we see Jesus as the better. So with that, I'm going to close out and we continue singing a little bit and worshiping and just being reminded that um, I think the thing I want us to like maybe process through, reflect on is that I am so thankful how God deals with Israel. And I think often it's easy to look on the negative, right? That, um, that we are that people that's always doing this stuff. But I think because this is God's, God's heart for them is God's heart for us. Even more so because he sent us his son, right? And that 
We can go, man, I screw up again and I can't do this and I'm struggling, whatever. And God's faithful to provide. He's faithful to come along. He's faithful to pursue and to be the better. Like he gives us Jesus. Jesus is still there. He's still the bread we need to digest and the water we need to drink. Like he gives us his son. Not just so we go to heaven, but for right now, today, where he wants to meet us right now. So that, let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for brought us to another week. Thank you that you're faithful and good. Thank you that you desire to be with us. And uh, thank you, Jesus, that you've done everything necessary, and that you are truly better. And so now, as we just continue just to reflect and, and sing a little bit more to you, we ask that you would um, just, keep, just change our hearts, make us more like you, and be with us as we go throughout our week. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.